You will find this on page 1,329, page 1,329, page 1,329 in your pew Bible, Matthew chapter 18, we'll be reading verses 15 through 20. All right. Matthew 15, 18, excuse me, verses 15 through 20. My friends, hear now the word of God. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. My friends, this is now the second of a three-part series on church discipline. We're dealing, of course, with perhaps a most unusual, maybe even unpopular topic, church discipline. Think children of school discipline. You don't usually like to go to the principal's office. This is not a popular thing, obviously. But that's what we're dealing with here because, well, it's in the Bible. And it has to do with the church. And we must, indeed, deal with it. As we have noted, then, it is a necessary topic. Without discipline, have a functional organization. Think about it. You couldn't even play a football game if you couldn't agree on the rules and play by the rules, right? You couldn't have a school unless you had discipline in it. And without church discipline, you don't have the church. Last week, we considered the purpose of church discipline. And you remember the analogy I used last week was that of a bowl of apples. So a beautiful bowl of apples. So gorgeous, just think of gorgeous apples in a beautiful golden bowl, perhaps. But there's a problem. There's a little bruise on one of those apples. So children, what do you got to do? You've got to, you got to cut out that one little bruise to save the apple, don't you? As a matter of fact, uh, if you didn't do that, you eventually would have to throw all the apples away because all the apples would become, would become rotten. 
more than that, if this, if this bowl of apples was in a wonderful mansion, let's say, maybe a, a, a beautiful house in somewhere in um, Buckhead, let's say, what, and, and so the owner of that house invites you in, you see this beautiful bowl, but it's all got a bunch of rotten apples in it, that would take away one net from the beauty of the bowl. And so last week then, we looked at the three basic purposes for church discipline. Number one, restoration of sinners and reconciliation. That's the point. Restoration of sinners, taking care that one little bit of that one apple is is cut out so that it doesn't cause the entire apple to go bad. And so restoration of sinners and reconciliation. Secondly, the purity, and we could even expand upon that, the purity and the preservation of the church. The purity of the church, because you don't want that rottenness to expand to all of the apples. And indeed, it can affect the very nature, the very existence of the church. So the purity and the preservation of the church. And finally, the honor and glory of Christ, the head of the church, it's, it's his bowl, and if you have a bunch of rotten apples in it, you see it's going to detract from his glory. So last week, we looked at the threefold purpose of church discipline. The individual, the group as a whole, and of course, Christ as the head of the church. Now today, then, we want to look at the procedure for church discipline sometime later on. Uh, Not next week, but sometime later on we'll talk about the power of church discipline. That's what we see here, these three things in Matthew 18. The purpose, the procedure, and the power of church discipline. But today, the procedure for church discipline. So let's take an overview of what Jesus is talking about here. So as we look at an overview, we see that there's been a private quarrel or a private offense, a brother offends you. A brother sins against you. Now this passage then has to do with a brother or a fellow Christian or at least a professing Christian. Now note that this is the procedure, the common procedure for whenever someone is confronted with sin. Now the specific occasion which Jesus is mentioning has to do with a private offense it's a private, that the offensiveness is not so much you offended me, but rather you sinned. Notice what it says there, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, it's not just, oh, you didn't make me feel good, but if someone does something in such a way as to sin against you. Therefore, please be aware that church discipline is only employed with regard to sin. So it's not anything that anyone might happen to think. It has to relate to the law of God. It has to relate to the word of God. What what commandment is being violated by whatever uh, is in view? And of course, there are all kinds of examples that we can think of. Lying. Lying. Selling illegal drugs beating up somebody, 
cheating on an exam. What? Stealing. Mm -hmm. Committing adultery. Mm -hmm. Living in fornication. Mm -hmm. Being angry without a good reason. Mm -hmm. Or refusing to treat a person with respect. So these are things, these are among things that we might think of in terms of various sins. And so notice the private confrontation then by the one who believes the brother to be at fault. Go and reprove him in private. So either he has deliberately offended you or maybe only you know about this. It's not widespread. That's, that's what Jesus is talking about here. This then, in that situation, this is the first step. Go and reprove him in private. Notice that the initiative rests with the one who believes a brother to be at fault. So if you think someone is at sin, if you think I'm in sin, then come to me, please. It will be, as the psalmist says, it will be a kindness to me. Because I have lots of sin. Some of which I don't even know about, I am sure. And so it will be a kindness, you see, as Psalm 141 says. And so go and reprove him in private. Notice also in this regard the importance of reconciliation. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, during the Sermon on the Mount, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24? Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And so before you engage in worship, make sure as much as possible, as much as lies within you, that you're at peace with your brother. And take the initiative in terms of doing that. Now, to reprove there, the verb to reprove means to bring to light or to expose or to convict or convince someone of something. And so when you reprove, you're calling that person to account, but you're doing it by bringing light to bear upon the subject. And of course, uh, in order to convict that person, to persuade that person, not to, to browbeat the person, but to try to persuade the person of the truth of what you're saying. Maybe the person is just blind in terms of that particular, doesn't know it's a sin. There are, there's much ignorance in the church today. So maybe the person really doesn't know that what he's doing is wrong. And so therefore you you try to explain, you, you bring the light of the word of God, which is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. You bring the light of the word of God, in thy light we see light, and convince and convict the person of the sinfulness of it. And what does Jesus say when you do this? If he hears you, you have won or you have gained your brother. That is, if he listens with understanding, and repents, you want him. And there the matter ends. Don't spread it about. That's gossip. Children, you've always heard, you've heard the phrase, forgive and forget, right? You've heard that phrase. Yes. That's exactly what we have here, forgive and forget. Even if you're hurt, forgive and forget. Just think how many times you've hurt somebody, right? 
forgive and forget. Don't bring it up again. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But now we come to the second step of the procedure of church discipline, which is corporate confrontation. Corporate confrontation. But Jesus says, if he does not hear you, take with you one or two witnesses, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now you'll notice that the uh, that in verse 16 then, where it says, by the word of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. But that's in italics, and it's also in single quotes. You see that? What is Jesus doing? He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament. Reconciliation having failed at the first attempt, another effort is to be made. Jesus here was quoting from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, which, by the way, points to the fact that we are to apply the Old Testament. We are to apply the Old Testament. If you look at uh, Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 19 and uh, verse uh, 15, we read, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. The matter shall be established. So, why is it important to have one or two more at this stage of the process? Well, I can think of at least two or three reasons why this is important. Number one, it helps to make sure that the complaint is not a silly one or a trivial one. It's not something that you should just, ah, just let it be like water off a duck's back. Not everything, not everything by which you take offense should be pursued in terms of church discipline. Sometimes you just have to let things go for any number of reasons. So it helps to make sure the complaint is not silly, it's not a trivial one, it's not simply the fact that you've been offended. Secondly, one or two others can help reason with the fellow. So it's not just one-on-one. Now you've got two or three reasoning and, and saying, my dear sir, my dear brother, well, let me, call, let me, let me remind you of this scripture over here. Let me, let me try to paint this picture. So it's not just the person who's been offended, perhaps, but it's others who haven't been offended in this regard, who are able to bring a certain objectivity to it and also be able then, without passion perhaps, dispassionately, unemotionally, be able to bring the matter to the the attention of the one who is in sin. And thirdly, one or two others can help to establish proof. One or two others can help to establish proof. Generally speaking, you need two or three witnesses to convict somebody of something. Now, sometimes in civil courts, sometimes even in church courts, you can have other witnesses, other testimony, if you will, circumstantial evidence, evidence, and so forth. But nevertheless, it is always good to have two or three witnesses in order to establish proof with regard to the matter. So, first step, 
go to your brother in private if this is just a thing between you. Secondly, corporate confrontation. And then thirdly, public proceedings. Notice what Jesus says, verse 17 of Matthew 18. And if he refuses to hear, but if he does not hear you, excuse me, if he refuses to listen to them, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them. Now the verb refuses to listen is a very strong verb. It's a very strong word that is being, if he refuses to listen, it's as if this person has shut his ears has held up his hands to his ears and refuses to listen. You ever dealt with somebody like that? As if, maybe literally, maybe figuratively, it's as if, la, 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 I'm not going to listen to you. Okay, that's where we're at. And that's why this final level of process, this third step of procedure is necessary a public matter, a public proceeding. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now it is interesting, as we look at that word church there, ecclesia, ecclesia, ek means out of um, call, okay? So the church is those people who are called out of the world. So kaleo, to call, they are called out of the world and called unto God. That's what ecclesia is. And it's interesting because the word that Jesus most often uses for the church in the Gospels is kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. And so that's the, that's the term that is most often used in the New Testament. But here, in this passage and in Matthew 16, it's the only two places in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only two places where the word church is used. But what we also want to note is that when it says, tell it to the church, yes, it does mean the church, but in terms of the procedure, it is specifically to bring it to the attention of the elders. To bring it to the attention of the elders, the presbyters, the elders, in order to adjudicate the matter, in order to decide the matter, in order to deliberate, to discuss it, and to come to a conclusion. But it's, it, it, it's interesting. It does say, tell it to the church, because the whole church now is interested in this. The whole church has a responsibility to be interested in this, to pray about it, to observe the proceedings. And now, of course, elders, the ones who are particularly responsible for it. Now turn with me back to Ezra chapter 10. So turn back to pages 648 and 649 to Ezra chapter 10, pages 648 and 649. And the reason why I'm calling our attention to this is to note that in Ezra 10, judicial process was dealt with in a very deliberate fashion. Did you notice this? That what, what was uh, to be done? 
verses 7 and 8 of Ezra 10, and they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem, that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated, he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. This is summoning people to appear. This is a subpoena. Subpoena means you get children, you get something, and you are called into court, whether as a defendant or whether as a, as a witness, or you get a traffic ticket, you're summoned to go to court. That's what is happening here. They are being summoned to appear, and if they did not appear... If they did not obey the summons, they would be penalized. Notice also something interesting here. People were examined. People were questioned with regard to this offense. Verse 17. Actually, verse 16. Then the descendants of the captivity did so. They gathered, and Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name. And they sat down the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter by the first day of the first month. They finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. This is a three-month procedure that was going on. If you look, in, you look at the list at the end of the chapter, you see, of course, there were many, many cases that they had in terms of this. But the point here is that they were examined they were questioned carefully with regard to this offense. And there's a list, there is then a list of those who had been convicted. Here is a public written account, not only of the proceedings, but also of the outcome. A written list of all these men's names recorded to their everlasting shame, we might say. There's the list. Now, as we take an overview of the procedure of church discipline, I want you to think of a courtroom scene. And when we say courts, well, we don't mean court in a civil sense or in a criminal sense. Obviously not. The church has no authority to punish people in that regard. The key, but however, the elders have the keys of the kingdom to open and to shut the keys of the kingdom to open and to loose. And so it is the key, it's a spiritual discipline. The keys of the kingdom are exercised. Let me also say that unlike a criminal or a civil proceeding, when we talk about church courts, there must be not only the sense of justice, but also the sense of mercy. And so there's a different flavor to it, if you will, but there is a similarity. Now, so think children, think older person, think courtroom scene, think Perry Mason or Matlock or whatever, whatever TV show you might think of. The prosecution of a case, of course, is a serious matter. It is serious in civil court. It is serious in church courts. But there are safeguards in the system to guarantee a fair trial. There are safeguards. I want to list a number of these for your, um, for your consideration. 
First of all, as I mentioned, when it says tell it to the church, it doesn't mean that the congregation as a whole votes on the matter. It is those who have been authorized, it is those who have been authorized who are the ones who adjudicate it. Now, look with me in Acts chapter 19, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, and uh, you'll find this uh, in your pew Bible on page 1502, actually, uh, because we're going to start in verse 29. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 29. This is when, you remember, there was a, 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 a riot there at the city of Ephesus, greatest Diana of the Ephesians, and so forth. These folks who are overturning our, our trade in pagan worship. Verse 29, so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. And some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another. For the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. This is a good reason not for, to make sure that it's not a mob that is handling a judicial matter. They didn't know what it was all about. Verse 33, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanted to make his defense to the people, but when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no account, no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now that's the pagan Roman Empire. My friends, if that is true in terms of the pagan Roman Empire in terms of justice, that it's not a mob, that it is only those who have authority that should decide the case. How much more is that the case with regard to the church? Look also at chapter 25 of Acts, page 1512. Again, to the same point, Festus, therefore he said, Acts 25, 5, therefore he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. Let those who have authority do it. And indeed, we know, therefore, that it is the wise, the mature men, the elders, the presbyters, who have the responsibility to sit in the gate of the city 
That's where they would be. It would be a public place, a place of commerce, but a public venue, a public location. They'd be sitting there. As a matter of fact, that's where we get the word session from for uh, Presbyterian government. The session is the group of elders at the local level. Session refers to those who are sitting. And so the elders then are sitting in the gates, those that are responsible, those that are wise, those that are mature, those that are elders, in order to hear the case. So that's the first thing in terms of guaranteeing a fair trial. Secondly, adequate notice must be given. We already noticed back in Ezra chapter 10 and verse 9, that all the men were to be gathered within three days. In other words, they had, it was to be, you know, let's go ahead and do this, but make sure that you, in other words, giving you enough time in order to come and to present your case. This, of course, is in accordance with the golden rule. Thirdly, the charges must be reduced to writing. The charges must be reduced to writing. Uh, in, you know, in the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 36, Jeremiah 36, and verse 2, we read where God says, take us to the prophet, take a scroll of a book, and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day. Put it in writing. Fourthly, witnesses are sworn in and their testimony is recorded. Witnesses are sworn in and their testimony is recorded. Paul says, let everything be done decently and in order, not chaotically. We've already mentioned the idea of subpoena power, summoning to compel testimony and appearance of those who have been charged. Sixthly, let me also notice that not all testimony may be forced. A spouse may not be compelled to testify against another one because, as Ephesians 5 tells us, they are one flesh. A husband and a wife, therefore, they may not be forced to testify against each other. Nor may the accused be forced to testify. Instead, others testify against him. Seven, as a in terms of procedure, we see that there must be sufficient evidence. We've already talked about the fact there must be more than one witness. Now we said that from Deuteronomy chapter 19, and I'll, I invite you to go back there just for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, is where it talks about two or three witnesses. But notice he go, the, the text goes on to say, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So this is another way in which the trial is fair, that a voluntary accuser who fails to prove his case may himself be censured 
as one who has slandered his brother. Another point here is that the court must carefully consider and weigh the evidence. The court must carefully consider and weigh the evidence. Deuteronomy chapter 22, Deuteronomy chapter 22 refers to verses 13 and following, refers to a man who detests his wife and says, uh, she really wasn't a virgin when I married her. And verse 16, the young man's, the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as wife, and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct. Now your daughter was not a virgin, and yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity. They shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. And so we see then that the court carefully considers and weighs the evidence. We see also the absolute right to be heard in one's own defense. And we sang today from Psalm 35, and it's easy to pass over the significance of this. But we sang today from Psalm 35, where the psalmist talks about false witnesses. But notice what he says. They reward me, verse 12, they reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul, but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth, I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. So the person who has been charged has the absolute right to say, no, I am not in sin. No, this is the reason why you should not convict me of this. These are false witnesses, and therefore the absolute right to be heard in one's own defense. You remember Nicodemus in John chapter 7 said, do we condemn a man before we have heard him? Another way in which we guarantee the, the uh, trial being fair is the right of appeal, the right of appeal from the local to the broader or higher court. In the Old Testament, you remember Jethro, Moses' father-in-law came, Exodus 18, and he said, you're wearing yourself out by, ha by ha hearing all these cases you need to appoint those that are over thousands, those that are over hundreds, those that are over 50. And so the lower courts, the ones, so a lot of them over, over men, over 50 people, but if it was too hard for them to hear it, too, it was too difficult a case, it could be appealed up to the higher courts and ultimately to Moses himself. And so the principle then of appealing the case from the lower to the higher. The final thing I want to mention here in terms of, of guaranteeing a fair trial is this. Even the public nature helps to guarantee a fair process. Even the public nature helps to guarantee a fair process. And so, if you look at Deuteronomy 16, this is page 265 in your Bible. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20, we read this. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, 
For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You want this process, you see, to be open and above board so that everyone can see that in point of fact, it was done properly. I also refer to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, where it was not a judicial case, but Boaz very publicly, you see, bought the right to marry Ruth. And he did it how? Not in a private matter, but in a public they public proceeding in the gates of the city. Now, two points of application today. The first is this. Pray, pray, pray with me, pray with us that church discipline would be carried out properly and justly in the courts of the church. Not just here locally, but throughout the church as a whole. Pray that church discipline would be carried out properly and justly. The second point of application is this. Remember that even in matters of injustice in church courts, because sometimes church courts get it wrong, even in matters of injustice in church courts, we are reminded of what Jesus suffered for us. Now, that is no excuse at all for injustice. I've served as an ecclesiastical attorney in the past. I've seen a lot of injustice in the courts of the church. There is no excuse. A lot of illogic, a lot of improper prosecution, and so forth. It is no excuse for injustice. No excuse at all. It's horrible. It's wicked. It's awful. Nevertheless, there is a re- this is a reality of the fact that the visible church is in a sin-cursed world. I mentioned a moment ago about Psalm 35, how we sing in that psalm, as we did sing, about fierce, false witnesses that rose up, and they were godless jesters at the feast. And we know, of course, that someday the Lord Jesus, who is the victorious Savior, will set all things right. And we also know this, that he is able to do so precisely because he is the Savior, precisely because he suffered the mocking of ungodly jesters in the feast, as well as the mocking of the elders. In just a moment, we'll be singing a portion of Psalm 69. And in Psalm 69, the psalmist talks about how zeal for the Lord's house has eaten him up. The reproaches of those who reproach thee have fallen on me. When I wept, was chastened in my soul with fasting. That became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword for that to them. They where they were gossiping about me. They were mocking me. Verse 12. Those who sit in the gate. Who are those? The judges. The elders. 
Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. My friends, Jesus someday will set all things right, even when the church gets it wrong occasionally. And he is able to do so, not only because he is now the victorious Savior, but because he first suffered all contradiction of sinners against himself, including the mockery and the opposition and the hatred and the injustice of the judges who sat in the gates. Never forget that. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that this message would be blessed to our hearts. We thank thee, Lord, that thou art the one who has established thy church. And again, we pray, Father, that thy church would carry out just with mercy. And so be pleased, Lord, to do that locally and indeed throughout the church as a whole. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.